Good afternoon. I pray you are rested and ready to go into another message. Uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the word we have received. We thank you for the fellowship and all the other blessings that you have allowed us to enjoy on this special day. As we open your word again, we ask that you will be in our midst, that you will impress our minds and our hearts, that we will rejoice in your word, in your promises, and that these promises will be fulfilled in each one of our lives. We pray and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you think of emotions, what comes to your mind? What is the emotion that you most like? Happiness. And what is the emotion that you most dislike? You know, there are, there are several emotions. Is the ability is, is, you know, we feel things. And there are emotions, there are feelings that are meant to protect us. And even though God created us not to live in a world of sin, uh, there are things that we experience and feel that can be warning signs. So, you know, if you get, if you get too close to something that is hot, you feel that sensation, which, which is a warning. But not speaking about uh, physical sensations, but more of emotional uh, feelings you have sadness, you have anger, uh, what else could we think of? Embarrassment, very good one, fear, anxiety, uh, loneliness. So of those emotions that you would tend to think that they're not positive, which of those do you dislike the most? Well, you think about it. I'll let you know which is the one that I do not, that I like the least. That is fear. Fear. That is the emotion that I like the least. Now, some people are, they actually enjoy fear. And they, they, they like adrenaline rush. So they go and they throw themselves and they do all types of scary things. And that just gives them a thrill. Uh, I'm not that type of person. <laughs> I, I have enough thrill in my life that when I have some break time, I want to relax. <laughs> uh, but you get my point, right? Um, and, but we read a lot in Scripture about fear and the way fear is conveyed in Scripture in different ways. And as Brother D. Casper was sharing with us early on when he started his seminar, um, Fear in Scripture is, is not equated, the fear of God, with a negative emotion, but with a positive experience. Uh, remember when God told Abraham, Now I know that thou fearest me, and that thou hast not withheld even thy son, thy beloved son, from me. So this afternoon, as we share from God's word, my purpose is not for us to feel fear, but the opposite. And to resonate with the words we find in Luke chapter 21, in Luke chapter 21, uh, let's read from verse 20 through 28. 
And while you look for that passage, I'm just going to see, okay, yes, this clicker is working. Luke 21, verses 20 to 28. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its destruction, its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive unto all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this doesn't sound like a very happy scenario, does it? But it goes on and says, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them. Why? From fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But notice the message given to those who love and fear God. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And that expression, lift up um, your heads, look, look up and lift up your heads, is actually translated in other Bible versions as rejoice. Rejoice because your redemption draws near. The National Reform Movement and the abomination of desolation are the mark of the beast. Uh, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 14, we read the words of Jesus, uh, which we also find in Matthew 24. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. The disciples asked Jesus for a sign of the end of the world, of the destruction of Jerusalem, even though they did not believe that was going to happen. But they asked him, and Jesus had said, when they pointed out to the marble buildings and great structures of the temple, there shall not be left here one stone upon the other. So then they asked him privately, what sign shall there be of the end of the world, of this age? And Jesus gave him this sign, the abomination of desolation. Now, we will not go into a Bible study of what that means in its second application. It's the final application, but you all, I think, you know what it is, the mark of the beast, the final test. The first one was the surrounding of Jerusalem by the Roman armies, which you can see there in the slide. In um, December of 1888, Ellen G. White wrote the following based on a vision she had received. And I read, A great crisis awaits the people of God. A crisis awaits the world. The most momentous struggle of all the ages is just before us. Events for which for the more than 40 years we have 
upon the authority of the prophetic word declared to be impending are now taking place. And, and notice what she is saying. For 40 years we were saying, we were announcing that certain events would be happening just on the authority of God's prophetic word. But now they are taking place before our eyes. Already the question of an amendment to the Constitution restricting the liberty of conscience has been urged upon the legislators of the nation. The question of enforcing Sunday observance has become one of national interest and importance. What was going on in 1888? Hmm? Exactly, the Blair Amendment. So let's, let's look at the context, the historical context, when Ellen G. White penned this forceful statement. I go on and complete this quote. We read, But are we, we know what the result of this movement will be, but are we ready for the issue? Have we faithfully discharged the duty which God has committed to us of giving the people the warning of the danger before them. In Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, page 711, she said, The National Reform Movement, exercising the power of religious legislation, will, when fully developed, manifest the same intolerance and oppression that have prevailed in past ages. Now, the National Reform Movement was a movement that was trying to bring about a lot of good reforms. We're going to see some of the reforms that they were advocating for. And this movement was also advocating for what eventually led Senator Blair to present a proposal of an amendment to the Constitution that would be enforcing a Sunday law in that period. So let's speak a little bit about that. The National Reform Movement emerged in the United States in the 1890s to correct what they perceived to be deficiencies or problems in business, government, and society. This movement was an outgrowth of the reform movements that arose during the antebellum period in America. Uh, so the National Reform Movement was a movement that had its roots in previous reform movements that had uh, manifested themselves in the antebellum period, which was the period between the um, 1812 war and the Civil War in the United States. Now, these movements of reform centered on issues such as pacifism, anti-slavery, women's rights, abolishing capital punishment, and temperance. And the temperance movement was quite foremost in the National Reform Movement you can recall reading in the Spirit of Prophecy references to the temperance movement. Those uh, reform movements that arose during the antebellum period in America focused on specific issues. Temperance, abolishing, abolishing imprisonment for debt, pacifism, anti-slavery, abolishing capital punishment. What else? Lowering, uh, improving the prison conditions. Um, into rehabilitation centers rather than just punishment, the humane treatment of animals, uh, the humane and just treatment of Native Americans, the establishment of public institutions 
for the mentally ill, for the destitute, the orphans, and the blind, the establishment of public schools, the abolition of tobacco use, vegetarianism, health reform, homeopathic medicine, women's rights, and the list continues. And as you read this list, aren't many of these things good things that we should be advocating for? Definitely. But the interesting thing is that among all these reforms, there was one as well that was piggybacking or was included in this package and precisely within the temperance aspect of this national reform movement. And what was that? A movement for a national day of rest, a Sunday law. And it was, as we read in the very first paragraph, this became such a big issue that it became of national interest and it was brought up to the halls of Congress by Senator Blair. Now, A.T. Jones, Alone Soot Trivier Jones, wrote the following because he recognized what was happening and the Lord used him even in the halls of Congress to speak against this uh, proposed amendment. So I quote him, the proposed religious amendment to the national constitution introduced into the United States Senate by Senator Blair was first introduced on May 25th, 1888. Then, on May 21st, but on May 21st, the same senator had introduced a bill to promote the observance of the Lord's Day as a day of religious worship. Notice that. This bill with modifications was also reintroduced by Senator Blair December 9 of 1889. So it was a process of 1888. I, you know, when Ellen G. White wrote in December of 1888, this was something that was being agitated on a national basis. Several modifications were introduced as it received some resistance until the ultimate product, which Senator Blair believed would pass, was presented. A bill to secure to the people the privileges of rest and of religious worship, free from the disturbance by others on the first day of the week. Now, notice the introduction. Doesn't it sound quite appropriate and not invasive? Because it's not speaking about imposing. It's speaking about uh, the privileges of rest and religious worship free from the disturbance by others on the first day of the week. It emphasizes freedom when in reality it was restricting freedom. You see how the use of language? That was back in 1888. By now, people have become even smoother in how they want to introduce things. Uh, so let me just read a short section of that uh, proposed amendment. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America, in Congress assembled, that no person or corporation, service of agent, servant, or employee of any person or corporation, or in the service of the United States in times of peace, except in the necessary enforcement of the laws, shall perform or authorize to be performed any secular work, labor or business to the disturbance of others, works of necessity and mercy and humanity accepted. Nor shall any person engage in any, in any play, game, amusement, or recreation to the disturbance of others on the first day of the week, commonly known as Sunday, 
or doing during any part thereof in any territory, district, vessel, or place subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of the United States, nor shall it be lawful for any person or corporation to receive pay for labor or service performed or rendered in violation of this section. Now, the introduction sounded milder than the actual content, right? Even though they do include the phrase disturbance in there. Well, this was very helpful. I was squinting to be able to read the letter. <laughs> okay. So that was the bill that was proposed, and we thank the Lord that it did not pass, but this was being agitated at a national base. It was making headlines. And as this was happening, what did inspiration, the pen of inspiration, tell us? It warned us of the great crisis. It warned us of the event that we had been proclaiming as Seventh-day Adventists for 40 years just based on the authority of the prophetic word. But now the events are taking place in our midst. But that bill was not approved in 1888. Now it's interesting that we are seeing reform movements today in our society. But some of them are reform movements not... Um, limited to the United States, but they're now on a global scale. Perhaps one of the most prominent reform movements, if we could call it that way, is climate change, global warming. In 1992, that's quite a while ago, Vice President Al Gore published the following book, Earth in the Balance, Ecology and the Human Spirit. In this best-selling classic, Al Gore addressed what he denominated as the world's greatest threat. Now, notice that language. That's pretty uh, emphatic, superlative language, the world's greatest threat. And since then, that has only been increasing as it's become more and more um, an, an issue that all the nations are pretty much concerned about and they're taking measures to address. The interesting thing is that within this movement, which has global repercussions, Sunday has been included. Sunday has been included, and that's not a secret. Many of you are aware of that. Many of you are aware of that. And many of you have become accustomed to that fact because it's not, it's not news anymore. But let's just refresh our memories. This is a title of, of a, one of the articles that was published by The Guardian in 2009. Slow Sunday, Simple Solution to Global Warming. Simple Solution to Global Warming. So on September 17, The Guardian published this article and they emphasized that using Sunday as a day of rest and renewal would be good for our personal health as well as the health of the planet. We cannot wait until the governments are enlightened enough to legislate and cap the carbon emissions. Matters are urgent. We have to act now without any delay. One thing we can easily do to achieve this goal is we can declare Sunday to be a fossil fuel-free day or a low-carbon day or at least an energy-saving day. Makes sense, right? It makes sense. 
Reading further on and from this very same publication from 2009, not long ago, Sunday used to be a day of rest, a day of spiritual renewal, a day for families to come together, but we have changed Sunday from a day of rest to a day of shopping, flying and driving. However, in the context of excessive carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere, which are bringing catastrophic upheavals, we can and should restore Sunday to a day for Gaia, a day for the earth. Interesting. And I bring this up because you, you, you can see, a, I can see a parallel with the reform movements back in the 1800s and now the reform movements of the 21st century and these parallels, I believe, are not a coincidence. Now, in 2019, uh, the Green Sabbath Project was established by Jonathan Schorsch, um, a Jewish scholar, professor of Jewish religious and intellectual history. And you can find this on the Internet very, very, very easily. But he had, to, he had this to say in the year 2019. The Sabbath is said to be a foretaste of the world to come. And he quotes not the Bible, but other uh, traditions, ancient traditions, to create this ecumenical feel for it. If you care about our future, about your well-being, observe a real Sabbath day of rest. It helps cultivate community, self-discipline, inner calm, and contentment. One powerful weapon in the fight against environmental deterioration and climate disaster may just be an age-old spiritual technology. What is it? One day, every week, do nothing. More recently, in 2020, Jonathan Scorch said the following, the Sabbath in an era of climate change, reiterating a Jewish practice that may help save us all. Observing a truly full weekly Shabbat, doing nothing as it were, offers an effective action that one can take now and help heal our environment. Since the heavily environmentally damaging developed world is made up mostly of monotheists, the impact of eliminating most emissions once weekly would be particularly important. In this very same article, he gives statistics of how much the percentage would be. About 14% of emissions would be reduced if one day a week uh, things just kind of shut down. The impact of eliminating the most emissions once weekly would be particularly important Judaism and Christianity call the Sabbath an obligation. If we really believe that radical change in our behavior is necessary for environmental reasons, and I certainly do, then don't these reasons make Sabbath, along with all other environmental solutions, an obligation? You see the logic and the reasoning? That was in 2020 that he made that uh, statement. Now, in September 2019, Pope Francis challenged governments to take drastic measures 
to combat global warming and reduce the use of fossil oils, fossil fuels, saying the world was experiencing a climate emergency. Francis, he wrote an encyclical in 2015 on environmental protection and said that now was the time for people to reflect on their lifestyles, urging them not to make thoughtless and harmful decisions on food, consumption, and transportation. We'll go back to that encyclical in a few minutes. But uh, this year, on April 22nd, on Earth Day, there were two big meetings uh, uh, in which uh, Pope Francis participated. They were virtual events. One of them was organized by our president, Joe Biden, and Pope Francis urged presidents and prime ministers to act courageously in addressing climate change and to learn from the coronavirus pandemic the need to create a just, equitable, environmentally safe planet. And I quote what Pope Francis had to say. Both the global catastrophes, COVID and climate change, prove that we do not have time to wait. Time urges us. And as COVID-19 demonstrated, we do have the tools to face the loss. We have the instruments. This is the moment to act. We are at the edge. And interesting what he said, that COVID-19, what did did COVID-19 prove to this world? That we have the tools, we have the instruments to bring about change. And that things change in this world on a global basis because of COVID-19. And people submitted to those changes. Uh, So he is saying, there is a need. We know that we have the tools. We can make change happen. It's time to act. Now let's take a brief look uh, or just review what this encyclical written by Pope Francis had to say. Laudato Si on Care for Our Common Home. It's a masterpiece of, of literature, um, if, if you read it. I've read it a couple of times, and it's impressive. It builds on the Old Testament theology of the Sabbath, of the sabbatical year, of the Jubilee, of how creation was meant to, that nature was meant to be a blessing for humanity. How on the sabbatical year, on the Jubilee year, even the slaves were to experience liberty, And as he elaborates on this through the 180-plus pages of this document, it eventually comes to a climax, and that climax is Sunday rest as a key component to bring about uh, a reform and in the climate change movement. I urgently appeal then for a new dialogue about how we are shaping the future of our planet We need a conversation which includes everyone since the environmental challenge we are undergoing and its human roots concern and affect us all. The worldwide ecological movement has already made considerable progress and led to the establishment of numerous organizations committed to raising awareness of these challenges. And on page 172 of this encyclical, he stated, Sunday like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day 
which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day, so that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. Quoting Exodus 23.12, rather than Exodus 20. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so the day of rest, centered on the Eucharist, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. I won't elaborate further, but, you know, from many different angles... This is being proposed and defended and promoted and promoted. And it's interesting. In this issue, Satan is using all parties and all movements. Some people uh, feel concern when the religious right in this country moves close to politics. Some people feel concern when the Republicans are in power, and I'm not saying this because of politics. Because then they will bring the Sunday law. Some Adventists conclude that when they read in the, in the great controversy about a Republican form of government, they somehow link it to the Republican Party and their, rears, their fears are, are risen. But notice how the enemy also works with those who are concerned with the environment and are promoting this type of liberal agendas. And he, it doesn't matter what party you are in. It doesn't matter what cause you advocate. The enemy, through ecumenism, makes progress anyhow. Anyhow. So this is, it's going to happen. But what is the role that we have to play in all this? Keep in mind that when these reform movements were being, doing their work during the 18th, 19th century, a lot of the things they were advocating were positive ones. And in some of them, we were urged, our pioneers and Ellen G. White urged to be a part of, even through our vote, uh, in restricting alcohol use and other laws that would protect society. So it does not mean that we should not advocate for these things, but the interesting thing that I want you to notice is that the enemy piggybacks on these reform movements to start introducing other elements that... Uh, most of the world will come to believe that will be the solution to our problems. Just last month, on June 13th, Cardinal Blaise Kupich of the Archdiocese of Chicago delivered the opening keynote address at the second Laudato Si, the encyclical written by Pope Francis, and the U.S. Catholic Church Conference held virtually and sponsored by the Catholic Climate Covenant and Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. The conference series seeks to find ways to integrate Pope Francis' encyclical more deeply into the experience of the U.S. Catholic Church. So notice that even now, just a month ago, the the encyclical on climate change continues to be the reference point to address climate change. And keep in mind that the climax, the centerpiece of that uh, encyclical is highlighting Sunday as a crucial element to bring 
climate change under control, among other things, but it draws to that uh, climax. Very interesting. Now, what is happening just this Friday, yesterday, Thursday and Friday? You, if you uh, look at the New York Times headings yesterday, it said European floods. This is for the New York Times. European floods are the latest sign of a global warming crisis. And uh, I'm not saying that this is not a crisis, but what I'm saying is that the more they agitate this crisis, notice that it is coming with the movement that is uh, in some way or, or another trying to promote Sunday as well. Extreme downpours like the ones that occurred in Germany are one of the most visible signs that the climate is changing as a result of warming caused by greenhouse gas emissions. Studies have found that they are now happening more frequently for a simple reason. A warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture, generating more and more powerful rainfall. And it goes on to say, floods like these, which have left more than 165 people dead, had not been seen in perhaps a thousand years. So these events are increasing, their intensity is increasing. They're not only happening in underdeveloped countries, but in nations like Germany, with a loss of 165 lives between Germany and Belgium, where they had the, 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 the greatest uh, deaths, and scores of people that have not been found because of global warming. The, this is a crisis. Now, the situation, the interesting situation, as I have been reiterating, is how this is being tied. There is a simple solution. There's something everything, everyone can do. It doesn't cost anything. One day a week, do nothing. Do nothing. It sounds, sounds uh, 14% of carbon emissions can be reduced just by doing this thing. And can you see, brethren, how someone who would not come from a religious perspective could very easily buy into this and even accept uh, legislation because it has a neutral appeal to all segments of society. And it would be very hard to, uh, to, uh, you know, to go against it. In fact, Jonathan scores, she says, it can be Friday, it can be Sabbath, it can be Sunday, just one day a week. That's the way he presents it. That's not the way it's presented in the encyclical Laudato Si, but uh, you can see the initial openness to whichever day from some sectors who don't understand what is the undercurrent. But we know what is the undercurrent because God had revealed it to us through the prophetic word. We understand what is the undercurrent. On December 11, 1888, within the context of those things here in the United States, Ellen G. White wrote, Referring to the book of Revelation, the prophet saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Another angel ascending from the east cried to them, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. This points out the work we now have to do which is to cry to God for the angels to hold the four winds until missionaries shall be sent to all parts of the world and shall have proclaimed the warning against disobeying the law of Jehovah. 
That was in 1888. That movement did not succeed. Things were delayed. And now we are, here we are, 2021. And we see how this is being agitated on a global basis. Yes, it's not been discussed in, in Congress. There's no amendment being proposed. But we can see the writing in the wall where it is headed. And, you know, the reform movements, it was... a. From 1812 to 1865, they were promoting reform, reform. Eventually, the temperance movement then proposed Sunday, and then they, they included that to where it came to where it could have happened. It could have happened, and Christ could have come shortly afterwards, but God's people were not prepared. Now, this time, we have the opportunity to be prepared. We have the opportunity, and it's... There's a much we can do if we believe and we also want to hasten his coming. Do we want this world of sin and suffering to come to an end? Do we really want that to happen? Sometimes we are confronted with, with, with the terrible effects of sin and we are reminded that there is a better world to come. But often we forget and we just get wrapped up in what this world offers and we fall into that lukewarm experience that uh, Pastor Holland was sharing. Last week, as I mentioned this morning, I was in Dominican Republic, and as I arrived to the airport on Thursday morning, not this week, but the previous week, they went up to, to pick us up. We were supposed to have a meeting on Friday, a board meeting with some ministry leaders, but that did not happen because we were driving at 4 a.m. to Richmond Airport, and at the very same time that we were driving to the Richmond Airport here in Virginia, there was a family that was driving to the airport in Dominican Republic where we were supposed to travel to. Now, on their way to the airport, there was an accident. There was a truck that was in the way. There was an accident. Uh, their car was bumped. The wife got out of the car to see what had happened, and another car speeding in the freeway hit her, uh, wounded her terribly, and a couple hours later, she died in the hospital. Now, the lady who died was a young mother, two children, and she was the niece, the niece and the spiritual daughter of uh, one of the members, of uh, the board members of this ministry that is an affiliate ministry of Heartland. And we, so we arrived from the airport, and from there we drove to the uh, a funeral service, not the funeral service, but they had like some type of, uh, in a, they had some special service there, and it was a very sad occasion. We could not have the board meeting on Friday. Uh, we eventually had it on Sunday, but the brother could not accompany us because on Sabbath morning, when they had just finished burying that dear beloved niece and spiritual daughter of his, then his, uh, he received another phone call that another close relative and very close friend of his had died from a heart attack. So then he had to go to another funeral, and he never made it to the board meeting. Uh, eventually, I got to see him the, there at the funeral house, and then later at his home at Tuesday, just before we flew back. Deep sadness that cannot be described. Very deep sadness. Uh, that makes us just, he just told me, you know, life is so, life is so, 
unpredictable, you know? Life is so brief. It's, it's almost an illusion. And um, the hope is in the second coming of the Lord. And do we really want this world of pain and suffering to come to an end? Do we really want this, this to God to be able to solve these issues that we are dealing, forth, dealing with in this world? I hope we do. Because the only solution to the, world, the problems we have in this world is, is Christ in our lives. Christ, the hope of glory. Now, I want to share these last 15 minutes. We have a, a reflection within the context of these events. When here in this quote, we see that it's making reference to Revelation chapter 7. When the four angels are commanded to hold the winds, hold the winds so that they will not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So they will not hurt the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees. Until when? Until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. God wants to hold those winds back until the work of sealing has been completed in his people. Now, when will the sealing occur? When will the sealing occur? Revelation 7, uh, Daniel chapter 12, Ezekiel 8 and 9, Revelation 21. We find indications of when this sealing will occur. It will be during the closing scenes of the Day of Atonement, just before Christ steps out of the most holy place and says, it is. He that is clean, let him be clean. And he that is unclean, let him continue to be unclean. When Michael steps out, and when Michael steps out, when our high priest steps out of the most holy place, what is the next event that happens when he steps out? The seven last plagues are poured upon this earth. And within the context of the first and second plague, what, what happens here on earth? As the first plague has fallen, or somewhere around that time, the death decree is made against all those who are still keeping the Sabbath. And the death decree is an event that is the climax to which the Sunday Law Movement will move towards. Eventually, Satan will not be content with, with not allowing Sabbath keepers to not be able to buy or sell, with, with having remove their properties and all type of financial support, exiling them or imprisoning imprisonment. Eventually, he will want to eradicate them physically from the face of the earth. And many things will have to happen to bring the world to that point, that mindset, where they're willing to, to kill uh, human beings because of this situation. We know in Revelation 13 that Satan will make even fire descend from heaven and that will be part of that scenario, that scenario. But as those events are happening, are leading to that climax, it says, let me read from 5 Testimonies, Volume 5, page 212. Already a few drops of God's wrath have fallen upon the earth. But when the seven last plague shall be poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation then it will be forever too late to repent and find shelter. No atoning blood will then wash away the stains of sin. 
Our own course of action will determine whether we shall receive the seal of the living God or be cut down by the destroying weapons. So that places the context of when uh, the seal of God needs to be placed on those who profess to serve him while there is still an opportunity to, to repent and find shelter. In that very same chapter, we read, Not one of us will we ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our character, to cleanse the soul temple of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Now, as we read these quotes, what comes to your mind? Do you experience fear? Do you experience a sense of hopelessness? Because I hope not. Even though we have these warnings of the three angels' messages, even though we understand that Christ's character uh, must be reproduced in his people and then he will come, the good news is that that is God's work in our lives. He has the power to do it. When the, when the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew hosts were walking in the desert, God had called them out of Egypt, but their, their pilgrimage from Egypt to Canaan was not an easy one, was it? They were murmuring, they were complaining, but constantly Moses was encouraging them to look and live, to believe and have faith. When they were bitten by the serpents in the desert, Moses instructed them, following God's command, look at the brazen serpent on the pole and you will live. And what did that brazen serpent represent? Christ, who knew no sin, who became sin for us. And that simple act of faith in the Redeemer, of recognition that they by themselves could not save themselves, that act of faith would have brought healing to every single Israelite that looked in faith at Jesus Christ. And today is the same message. It is that same message. No one need say that his case is hopeless. Page 215 of five, volume 5 of the Testimonies. No one need to say that he cannot live the life of a Christian. Ample provision is made by the death of Christ for every soul. Jesus is our ever-present help in time of need. Only call upon him in faith. And he has promised to hear and answer your petitions. What does he say? Only call upon him in faith. And he will answer your petition. The thing is that Satan tries to keep us distracted or he tries to make us believe that it's not worth it so that we will not cry out in help. Remember when Jesus told the father of this uh, demoniac-possessed son, a uh, child, and he asked him, can you do something? And Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He recognized that his faith was weak, and just recognizing and saying, Lord, help me. Help my unbelief. And what did Jesus do for that father? He immediately cast out the demon from that child. And then we come to Christ and we said, Lord, I am weak. 
I have, I, my faith is weak, but help my unbelief. He will hear that cry. He will answer our petitions. He will answer that prayer. Zechariah chapter 3 has such a beautiful uh, vision that is especially applicable to, our, to this time in our near future. The vision of Joshua and the angel. You know, that is one of, one of my favorite chapters uh, lately in the spirit of prophecy. You can find it in volume 5 of the Testimonies. You can find it in Prophets and Kings. The explanation of Zechariah chapter 3. But let's go to Zechariah chapter 3 and just take a look at that wonderful vision. Very encouraging vision. Zechariah, right before the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand. Now remember when Zechariah, not the prophet, but Zechariah, the, the priest, the father of John the Baptist, was in the temple, and Gabriel appeared to him, where, where did Gabriel stand? On the right hand, right? The right side. And that was supposed to mean favor from God. But he was so scared, he, he didn't see those signs. Now, notice that Zechariah the prophet, years before, when he sees this vision, where does he see Satan standing? He was at his right hand. And he was at his right hand to do what? To oppose him. To oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? It doesn't matter our past. God sees us as a brand plucked from the fire that he has purposed to save. If we will cry out to him, Lord, save me. Now, the Lord cannot do anything for us if we don't recognize our condition and if we don't seek Him. But if we recognize our condition and seek Him, He will do what He has promised in our lives. Verse 3 says, Now Joshua, the high priest, was clothed with what types of clothing? Filthy garments. And was standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, the angel, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, to Joshua, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. With rich robes. I read from the pen of inspiration, As Satan accused Joshua and his people, so in all ages he accuses those who are seeking the mercy and favor of God. Counsels to the church, page 351. He knows that those who seek God earnestly for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he, the accuser of the brethren, presents their sins before them to discourage them. To discourage them. He constantly is seeking occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even their best and most acceptable services he seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and the most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. Now, the fact that God's people are represented as standing before the Lord in filthy garments 
should lead to humility and deep searching of heart on the part of all who professed his name. It says, those who are indeed purifying their souls and obeying the truth will have a most humble opinion of themselves. The more closely they view the spotless character of Jesus, the stronger will be their desire to be conformed to his image. So notice how this works. There's nothing good in us. We cannot save ourselves. Our case appears to be hopeless. But when we look at Christ and we see his, his matchless, his spotless character, what will start happening? We will desire to be transformed into that image. And when that desire surges in our heart, then we will cry and ask for it. And if we ask for it, the Holy Spirit will start doing that transformation in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit, but we have to ask for it. Many times we focus on, I can't do it. That's true. We can't do it. It's a supernatural work. But if you just stay on that level, I can't do it, rather than looking to Jesus, then you cannot step into the next phase when God's transforming power will actually enact that miracle in our lives. So Satan tries to keep us distracted so we will not focus on the cross. It adds, but while we should realize, we should realize our sinful condition, we are to rely upon Christ as our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merits, but on his own. Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who by repentance and faith have committed their, the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause using what? The mighty arguments of Calvary and vanquishes the accuser. His, whose? Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience to God's law has given him all power in heaven and in earth, and he claims from his Father mercy and reconciliation for a guilty man. It is his perfect obedience that Jesus uses in order to ask from the Father mercy and reconciliation from guilty man. Prophet and King says that that vision of Joshua and the angel applies with peculiar force to the experience of God's people in the closing scenes of the Great Day of Atonement. In the closing scenes of the Great Day of Atonement. When the remnant church will be brought into great trial and distress. When those who are true to God will be menaced, denounced, and proscribed. They will be betrayed by parents, brethren, kinsfolks, and friends, even unto death. Their only hope is in the mercy of God. Their only defense will be prayer. As Joshua pleaded before the angel, so the remnant church, with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith, will plead for pardon and deliverance through Jesus, their advocate. They are fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. They see their weakness and unworthiness, and they're ready to despair. Satan has an accurate knowledge of the sins he has tempted them to commit, and he brings, he urges these accusations against them. 
declaring that by their sins they have forfeited divine protection and he has the right to destroy them. He pronounces them just as deserving, deserving as himself of exclusion from the favor of God. He says, are these the people who are to take my place in heaven and the place of the angels who united with me? They profess to obey the law of God, but they have not kept its precepts. They have been lovers of self more than lovers of God. And then it says, Behold their selfishness, their malice, their hatred of one another. But while the followers of Christ have sinned, it says here, the followers of Christ have sinned, they have not given themselves to be controlled by the satanic, satanic agencies. Wonderful promise. They have not given themselves up to be controlled by the satanic agencies. They have repented of their sins and have sought the Lord in humility and contrition. And the divine advocate pleads in their behalf. The assaults of Satan are strong. His delusions are subtle. But the eye of the Lord is upon his people. Their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them, but Jesus will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. These, these, this situation, this crisis, God will use it for those who have learned to depend upon Him to perfect their characters to God's image. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that a wonderful promise? Often we, are, we, we have this idea that if if I don't perfect my character before the Sunday law, I will be lost. And we try to create a, a, a religion of righteousness by works. It is Christ who's going to do the work in us. And as we see our defilement and we see His mercy and His love, we are drawn to trust more and more in Him as He defends us with His righteousness. And the trials that will surround us during this time of trouble Prior to when he steps out of the most holy place, it says that these trials are the flames of furnace that Jesus will use to, let me quote, their earthliness will be removed, that through them the image of Christ may be perfectly revealed. He will bring them forth from the trial as gold tried in the fire. What a wonderful promise. My invitation this morning, the appeal that I feel to my own heart is what we find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 to 39, Hebrews chapter 10. You know, as, and as, I, as we turn to this scripture to close our study this afternoon, I think of a, when I had, I've been married now for 26 years. Time goes by very quickly. Uh, I got married in 1994. That year, I was a volunteer here at Heartland, at Heartland Publications. My, and, and that was my first experience here at Heartland, 1994. But shortly after I got married, uh, I, my cousin, one of my cousins, had a child out of wedlock, and she entrusted me and my wife if we could bring up this child. And we took him as our own child. We had no children at that time. And this little child, we were, I thought it a great privilege to be able to parent him. Uh, and uh, one day, he had these character deficiencies that were quite severe. 
And I was trying to deal with him and encourage him to do what was right. I remember very clearly one day that he was so disrespectful, so, I mean, out of the world with, with an older person. And I said, Samuel, his name was Samuel, don't, you can't do that. Don't be disrespectful. Don't, why do you say those things? I was, and, I, and I told him, please ask this gentleman for forgiveness. I will not ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. It didn't work. No amount of coaxing. So then in, in my inexperience, I told him, well, you can choose. Either you ask him for forgiveness or not. But if you don't ask him for forgiveness, you won't have lunch today. <laughs> Did I hear an amen? <laughs> that was not meant to elicit an amen. You know, I tried coercion and it did not work. He said, don't give me lunch. And he was a little kid. He was about five years, less than five years old. I won't eat lunch. I won't say I'm sorry. He did not budge. And he preferred not to have lunch. Well, eventually I felt sorry for the poor boy. And I said, well, I, my, my theology was not straight. You know, God does not coerce us to repentance. He invites us to repentance. He invites us. And as we, as we look upon the Lord and his, what He has done for us, if we look on Him, this will be the response in our hearts to seek Him in repentance and ask Him, please complete the good work that you have begun in our lives. Continue that good work. Hebrews 10, uh, and we read verses 37 through 39. For yet a little while, and He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, but, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. May that be the experience of each one of us. We are not of those who draw back, but of those who believe to the saving of our souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the times in which we are living. And I pray, Lord, that we will realize as we see these signs, as we see these international movements, we will lift up our eyes. We will look up because our redemption draweth nigh. And Lord, thank you because as we see the events that will lead towards the final crisis on this earth, we have no reason to fear because we serve a God who has purpose to save us. If we look unto you, you will increase our faith. You will build on that little capital of faith that we have. You will cover us with your righteousness. You will present the powerful arguments of your death on the cross to banish the accuser of the brethren. And you will use the trials to complete that good work which you have begun in each one of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful mercy. We want to respond. We do not want to disappoint you because you have done so much for us. How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We claim these promises in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.